The world seems so unstable, so insecure. Everything is changing way too fast. But there are some things that are steadfast, things that never change. God and His Word. Join us as Pastor Randy Rehm shares truths from God's unchanging Word. And we learn that that the reason they know there's these loaves and fishes is Jesus actually sends them out to the crowd to find out well, what, how much food is in the crowd. We've already been told in one of the other Gospels they left without get, bringing anything with them. And so they got there and they find this young lad. Again, and some guys that are way smarter than me, that word lad can be a young slave. It doesn't necessarily have to be male. Um, and I let the scholars who are the experts in Greek debate that one. Now he has five barley loaves. Now I think this is the only one of the Gospels that tells us it's barley. And if you read non-biblical, uh, I'll call it secular Greek at the time, you can run across some things where somebody talks about bar- barley loaves and, and the response of the other recipient is, well, just give it to the horses. Because barley, you ever ate barley bread? That ain't white flour, white bread. That ain't wonder bread, folks. Barley bread's the low-end bread. You know, my wife eats that bread with nuts and twigs and sticks and things in it. You know what I mean? Uh, but that's barley bread, uh, okay? It's not like you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna smoosh it and roll it in a nice soft ball. Then he has these fish, and you heard me tell the kids, there's no refrigeration. It's been all day. It's probably either a pickled or a dried fish. That, that's probably what we're looking at. And they're not big old loaves of bread like we think. Some argue that, they're, that the word actually means cracker. Uh, and I'm, not, again, not a good, an, an expert enough anyway to determine that. But it also tells you this. How were the disciples and Jesus going to eat? They didn't even have anything with them. So they go find this, this lad's lunch or dinner, okay, and verse 10 tells us, Jesus said, have them sit down. Now, the other Gospels show, tell us that he had them sit down in groups of 50 and 100, according to the men. All right? So how do you know there was about 5,000 men? Because we put them in groups of 50 and hundreds, and we can just count groups. Do you see what I'm saying? You don't have to count every person, just groups. All right? And according to the men, which would mean according to families. Now, Jesus has been teaching and healing all day long, and the children were there. I'm not going to over put too much time on that one. They didn't send the children off to be watched somewhere else. The children were in the time period where Jesus is teaching and healing all day long, and the children were there. I'll keep moving. But the other thing, these things, Groups of 50s and 100, it creates aisles. You group these people. Now, now you can get in between the people, and Jesus knows what he's going to do, to distribute these, this food, this bread and this fish. And again, it says that there was uh, much grass in the place. You, again, you can go online and look at that if you want. Okay, But it, but it tells us that's probably comfortable. I mean, anybody, anybody outside yesterday out on your nice green grass when the rain finally stopped and after all this cooler weather... It was nice, okay? And then Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks. Now, I'm going to take that word given thanks for a minute. Often referred in the other Gospels, the word blessed. It is the word where we get the word Eucharist. 
this Greek word means to bless. It doesn't mean communion. It means to bless. So when you sit down to bless your food, it's a Eucharist. Okay, no matter what Catholicism labels the Eucharist, the reason they call it that is because when Jesus broke the bread at the Lord's Supper, he did this same thing. He gave thanks. Okay? So, um, imagine he gave thanks for the five loaves and the two fishies. We tend to have a little sarcasm in our brain there. We'd be going, you're thanking him for that? That ain't going to get it. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, 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 I know you would never think that way. You're more spiritual than I am, but I would think that way. Okay? Um, so he gives them thanks for what they had, but he's also thanking him in advance for the miracle. Jesus already knew what he intended to do. Okay? Let me put it another way. Present your prayers and supplications and petitions with thanksgiving. Okay? With, with, and you've heard me talk, not and, with thanksgiving. So Jesus is coming, he knows what he's going to do, and he gives thanks ahead of time. We, we see Jesus do this on other occasions. We see him do it at the Lord's Supper. And one of the reasons of the tradition in many Christian homes is to pray for food, because Jesus did. We find it, he just did it. So we do it, okay, in thanksgiving. Now Mark, Matthew Mark says he actually looked up to heaven. Now why do you think he would do that? Because 25,000 people are watching. He wants them to understand the source. I only do what the Father does. I and the Father are one. So let's look up where they know the Father to be and let's make sure they understand that I'm doing this because the Father does it. All right? Um, what's interesting, this is how John speaks of it late, later when they return to the same place. In verse 23, John says this, the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. The point he's pointing out, not the bread, the fish, not the lad, not the amount of people. But he recalls, this is the place where Jesus gave thanks. Okay, so the emphasis here is the giving thanks. That, that's the emphasis, at least in John's eyes. And he raises his eyes up to heaven. And what's interesting, again, he does the same thing when he lays, raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Father, I thank you. That's how he starts. That you have already heard me. Well, you haven't said anything until here, until until Lazarus. I mean, until he gets there, he doesn't say anything. That you've heard me. But I know that you always hear me. But for the sake of those standing here, I declare, Lazarus, come forth. He thanks God for the miracle before it's there. He does the same pattern here. Okay? So the crowd could see this. And again, I want to point out, it's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four Gospels. Why? Because it has twenty to 25,000 witnesses. You heal a guy by a pool, you have those in the room. You, you heal the official son, which we've already said, okay? Now, the official son, he heals with a word. It's done. But it isn't really much different when he comes to the man at the pool. Uh, get up and walk. 
at his other miracles shown in the wedding at Canaan, he don't touch not, nothing. He just tells the guys to fill the jars. So the miracle sort of kind of happens in the hands of the servants that are obedient. Here, the miracle happens in the hands of Jesus. And he wants 20,000 witnesses. What's interesting to me is you read about Jesus' opponents, those who oppose Jesus. They never deny that his miracles are real. They never claim you do false things. Now, they didn't like what he said about he and the Father being one. But they never said, you know, he never healed that guy. Nope, he never fed 5,000. No. Why? Because there were too many people that were eyewitnesses to it. Easy. Did you hear he fed 5,000? Nah. We can just prove that. Ask one of the 5,000 men. Ask one of the 20,000 people there. They didn't do that. No, ask them. There are 20,000 or more eyewitnesses to it happening in Jesus' hand. You can't say it was the servants. You can't say it happened back at the official's home. You can't say it was because the guy's been laying there lame all this time and he was faking it. This happens in Jesus' hands where he creates something that never existed before. Okay? And he distributed... To those who were seated, likewise the fish. Casual statement. No fanfare. No setup. And he doesn't use that language to prime the crowd to receive their miracle. No. He doesn't even address them. He just prays for the food and starts... Now, here it doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels, he distributed via the, the disciples. Okay? And remember, don't just think 12, because you're going to think, man, them 12 is going to take a long time to handle all that food. Well, there's more than 12 here that are referred to as disciples in general. Okay? So when Luke tells us he broke those pieces of bread, of course, and gave it to the disciples and set it before the crowd. So and we're going to, he's going to break the fish, too, I, I'm assuming, Right? But I, I want you to think about here. Here he's got the. His, he gets down to the last of the five loaves, and takes that piece and puts it in the hand or the basket or whatever the one of the disciples is carrying. Probably they've got their the row part of the robe up like this, and you're putting it in there. I hope it's clean. But anyway, um, putting it in there. All right. But then there, then, then there's more bread. <coughs> uh, where'd that come from? Didn't he just give out the last piece? Okay. He, he is creating bread, not from grain that grew on the ground, but grain that never touched the earth. That flour that that bread made, never, no person ever ground into flour. Fish that never swam in the sea. Using Jesus' terms later, that's bread and fish from heaven. Bread and fish not affected by the fall. Entropy, the decay, they begin to break down. The wheat of Jesus' day, excuse me, <coughs> like our wheat today, not the same as the wheat that would have been grown in the Garden of Eden. <coughs> what does wheat and fish taste like that's never seen imperfection? No wonder they ate till they were full. 
Went back home. No, <laughs> you wouldn't believe. No, really, this is the best fish I ever. No, you've never tasted fish like this, Kylie. No, you never. And the bread, oh, you couldn't even tell it was barley. All right. Now, I'm exaggerating there a bit to make a point, though. He creates something that's never seen the physical realm in front of 20 to 25,000 people. I don't know if you know this, but one of the things he's showing you is he's greater than Elisha. Because Elisha fed 100 people on 20 loaves of barley bread and had some left over, 2 Kings 4. All right? You, you thought Elijah was one of those prophets of which they be speaking, what Philip talked about that they'll refer to here. Jesus is greater than even Elisha. Okay? Who did double the miracles of Elijah? Jesus is greater than that. You thought, you thought feeding 100 guys with 20 loaves. But if that was a miracle, 100 with 20 loaves, imagine the miracle of 20,000 on five loaves. And it says they had as much as they wanted. I'm going to compare, try, contrast that to uh, even if we bought a bunch, they everybody have a little. He wants to make point out, he wants to understand this impossible thing went beyond just supplying some. All they wanted and they were filled. Not just enough to be polite, but they were filled. They wanted to sit back in the recliner, put their slippers on and loosen their belt trying to put it in a good old western gluttony form okay and then he says to the disciples gather up the leftover fragments jesus knew this when god supplied there was more than enough now please don't think finances right now think grace more than enough God has enough grace. There's some left over. You don't get to use it up. You can't use it up. It's infinite. As God is infinite, so is His grace. Yeah, when the devil's trying to tell you you used up God's grace, slap him up the head, side to head and call him a liar. Then Jesus gives the reason, he says, why he wants them to go to collect this. So that. Now, I think most of us are pretty good students of English. Enough to know when you say, so that, he's telling you why. So that nothing will be lost. This is important. Jesus uses the same general phrase later in the chapter, I will lose none. I know, you've never made that connection. Let me read to you from the Didache. The Didache is a Greek document from... Before, I'm still in the first century, it was written, they believe, to some outlying churches that hadn't had an apostle come and teach them the things, and it's a letter of instruction. You can go look at it online. They have it, okay, in English for you, okay. In chapter 9, section 4, we thank you, our Father, there's the Eucharist part, the blessing, for the life and the knowledge which you have made known to us through your servant, 
to you be glory forever. Even as the broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. This early author in the first century writing to a church in the island, sees this imagery of the bread being broken and cast like a, as the church. And I want you to make sure, Jesus says, that none of it is lost. I'm, I'm making a leap here, and I know some of you are going, what? You will see Jesus himself makes that statement of the church. None will be lost. Remember, this is to test them. He's setting them up for what's to come. It's not about the fish spoiling or the bread getting moldy. The 12 baskets to show you the extent of the miracle. How big were those baskets? I don't know. It's not the point. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves, which was left over by those who had eaten it. It's simply to underscore the greatness of this miracle. How in the world did five loaves and two fish become twelve baskets full? It wasn't, it was created on the spot. Okay? Jesus is the creator. Remember his claim in the previous chapter, I and the Father are one. I do what the Father does. The Father creates, watch me. <clears throat> Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this truly, or this is truly the prophet who is to come. Uh, for one, I'm going to grab hold of the word sign because it's one Paul use, or John uses a lot. Okay, and remember, he's giving seven signs to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, or God, as we found out in chapter 5. When you say that, you're claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to kill him. But it also refers back to Deuteronomy 18 and 15, and the Lord Moses speaking, and the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. As long as he doesn't come from Nazareth, we'll be all right with that, right? He needs to come another, anyway. All right, so, so they recognize that this is what the prophets, in particular Moses being Passover season, particularly the one he spoke of. This is that prophet. Remember what the woman at the well said. I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay. So Jesus perceiving, they haven't said anything, he reads their minds. Perceiving that they were intended to come take him by force and make him king. How do you do that? I'm not sure. Okay, he withdrew again to the mountain. So they're down there collecting. He goes further up the mountain. If you, again, you can go look at this. Look, it's, I don't know what, the, I forget to look at the elevation of it, but you can do 360 from that area. Look over into Jordan. You can look all the way. He goes up on the mountain further. And we learn, we'll learn next time about what happens to the disciples in this process. Okay. Um. What's interesting is he didn't have a problem when Nathaniel hailed him as the king of Israel in chapter 1. 
That's how Nathaniel recognized him after Philip had introduced him as the one which Moses and the prophets wrote. Nathaniel meets him when Jesus sees him before he even gets there. He sees him under the tree, the king of Israel. Okay. But what's interesting, I think Jesus' biggest struggle with the crowd, according to what he says in verse 26, you seek me, he says later, not because you saw the sign, but because you wanted a handout. Because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. I'm retreating here because you don't want to vote for me as king because of who I am. You want to vote for me as king because what you think I'm going to give you. That's what Jesus said. Yeah, you want a king and wants to give you handouts. Raise the government check you're getting. It's an analogy for us. Uh, the only reason you want to follow me is because you think if you follow me, you can be prosperous, happy, well-fed. I think one of the lessons we can draw from this is we not, ought not to seek Christ for what he can do for us in this world. There is a whole movement in so-called Christianity. It's all about that. Jesus came to do stuff for you so you can have stuff. Okay? You can have your best life now. Okay? Matter of fact, he was creative, and you speak the right words. You can create your own prosperity. Okay? Jesus says, excuse me, I'm moving up the mountain." I'm going to put it this way. There is no presence of God in that crowd. That modern crowd that's saying this. It's about what you can give me. God says, I, 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 I retreat from there. I, I pull away from that. I'm not in that. Rather, we should seek God for what he has already done. If he never gives you a piece of barley bread... If he never offers you a piece of pickled fish in our story today, he's already done everything you would ever need. He's already, through the cross and his substitutionary death there, took our punishment that we would have eternity with him. He decided who gets to hang with him. And of those, he'll lose none, by the way. He, he did it already. What else can you ask him for? That's why if you start with thanksgiving, start with thanksgiving of this. Father, I thank you for the cross of our Christ. I thank you that he took my sin and bore my iniquity. Then what are you going to ask for after that? Well, you know what? Because I come that way, he says, you know what, if... Just ask according to my will and it's done. Notice according to his will. Okay? But, it, but I think it puts it in perspective when we're not looking for God to do something for us. If we look to God for what he's already done. Remember those testimonies, those, those proofs of who he is. This is one of them, this story. And I will take you back to chapter, verse 36 of chapter 5. But the testimony which I have, Jesus, is greater than the testimony of John. For the works, this is one of his works, which the Father has given me to accomplish, the works that I do testify about me 
that the Father has sent me. No, no. This ain't here to testify how you can get a free meal. This is done that you would understand this crowd that I am sent from the Father. What does that mean? Well, we learn the religious people say, we're going to kill you because you claim to be God. It's there to tell you he is God. Not to tell you how to get a handout. And there were plenty of people that followed him. And we find out in the same chapter, when Jesus started getting rough with the words, they leave. Oh, this, this ain't about bread and fish. This isn't about what I can get from this. This means I have to do so. I, have, I, don't, I don't like that. I just want to know what you will do for me. And they abandon. Our Western culture looks to religion, even in evangelism we tend to do this. You have this empty void. Jesus will come fill your void and you'll feel better. You even approach the gospel that way. You know, you know, I know your life's a mess. Give it to Jesus, it'll be better. You sure? Are you sure about that? I'll take you other places in the world that gave the lights to Christ and it ain't better. Matter of fact, they're persecuted, killed, all kinds of reasons. They didn't get any better. They were doing fine until they switched from Islam to Christianity. Then things went bad. So, so it's not that your life becomes better, that there's more loaves and more fish. It, it, it gets better in this sense. There's a life yet to come. And it ain't about this one. And in this one, I'll follow him even to a cross, which does lead to an empty tomb, though, too. But he guarantees you this. In this world, you will have tribulation. I guarantee it. That's a promise. Put that on your refrigerator up there. Okay, with your Joshua 1.9, and I know the plans I have for you out of Jeremiah 29.11. You will have tribulation, but I have overcome this world, which means what? It's all about the world to come. Don't look for him what he's going to do for you now. Look for what he's already done in time. So therefore, that's accomplished, and you see what's done outside of time. Let's stand. Lord, I thank you for these miracles, these stories in your word that sort of boggle our mind. We're sort of overwhelmed with the measure of it, the size of it. God, but I thank you in that you show who you are. You show God that it isn't about those things, but it's about what you came to do to save us from our sin, to take our place, to show and reveal to us God. We thank you, O Lord, that when we see Christ, we see you, not ourselves, but you, Almighty God. To you be the praise and the glory. Amen. This is Stephen Wilson, and we want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope you were blessed by today's message. Truths from God's Unchanging Word is an outreach ministry of Kindred Bible Church in Caldwell, Idaho. If you would like to listen to other messages by Pastor Randy or learn more about Kindred Bible Church, visit kindredbible.org. Our prayer for you is that you grow closer to Christ as we study the truths from God's Unchanging Word.